This morning we are returning to John chapter 4. We've been studying through the Gospel of John. Took a bit of a break over the Easter holiday. But now we come back to chapter 4 and we're actually picking up the story of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. We're picking it up right in the middle of the story. We'll start this morning with verse 27. Please give your attention to God's word. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I remember once being asked in an interview for a ministry position, what is it that gets you stoked the most in life? And I remember the question just because it's typically those kind of ministry interviews, that's kind of unusual language to use, kind of casual. But the word stoked stuck with me. I've always remembered that. What is it that makes you most stoked in life? And the more I thought about that question, as unorthodox as it may be, I can't think of a better question to really ask anybody. When you think of stoking, you think of a fire. What is it that stokes the fire in you more than anything else in life? What is it that fires you up? What is it that drives the passion in your life? What stokes you? Now, in that interview, if I had said what might quickly come to mind, I might not have gotten the job, because I might have said Phillies baseball, or Buffalo chicken pizza, or a new Dylan album. You know, I might have said a number of things that, you know, kind of typically comes to mind when you think about what really fires me up. What is it that really stokes you? What fires you up? Jesus, in this passage, makes one of those secret to success and fulfillment in life kind of statements. Did you pick up on it? It's in verse 34. He says, my food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's one of those statements that you want to write on your mirror and look at every morning when you get up. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, what really stokes my fire is to do the will of the Father in heaven and to accomplish the work that he has sent me to do. If you remember back a couple of weeks to our first message on this passage, that's really what this whole chapter is about, isn't it? It's all about finding deep, meaningful purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment in life. That's what the whole chapter is about. Because in the beginning of the chapter, we saw how Jesus asked a woman for a drink and then turned around and offered to give her living water. Living water. Water that deeply satisfies not just her physical needs, but her spiritual needs. And not just for today, but for eternity. And so as he talks with this woman at the well, at Jacob's well, he shares secrets about her past that only God could know. And then reveals himself to be the Messiah and says to her, come to me and I will give you this living water. So Jesus wants to talk to all of us about what is living water in our lives and what is the spiritual food that stokes our fire. Well, you think about it, as we pick up the story here in the middle of it, Jesus has just said to this woman, I am the Messiah. And at that moment, the disciples walk up. Have you ever had a real personal, intimate conversation with somebody, just one-on-one, and and you get to the point where either you or the other person shares something really kind of intimate and personal and private and and earth-shattering, and then somebody else walks into the room who's totally clueless and interrupts the conversation at the most inopportune moment. That's really what happens here. That's where, really where we pick up the reading this morning. The disciples have walked in. They've just come back from the Samaritan town nearby with food for Jesus and themselves. And they walk in, and, and the woman has just heard that the Messiah, the promised one of all ages, is there standing before her, offering her living water, and she sees the disciples, and I can only imagine, from what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the way the Jews viewed the Samaritans, that they looked at her with disapproval. They, it says in the text, the disciples were shocked that Jesus was talking to her. And it was probably their reaction, as much as her own excitement about telling her story to her own townspeople, that led to her leaving her jar there and running off to town. The disciples were shocked to see Jesus talking to this woman because we have actually some rabbinic teaching from the first century. This is actually a quote. It says, A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman, on account of what men may say. That was the teaching of the rabbis for Jewish men about Jewish women, let alone about a Samaritan woman. We talked a couple weeks ago about how the Samaritans were In the eyes of the Jews, religious heretics, enemies, they hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. And so the woman, in her discomfort in this awkward situation, leaves 
And Jesus is left there at the well with his disciples. He has just offered this woman living water, and now he turns to the disciples and he offers them kingdom food. And by offering them this kingdom food, he gives us all a lesson in what kingdom work is really all about and how to find our ultimate satisfaction in that work. Why has God left the church in this dark, corrupted, dirty, filthy world? Why are we still here? We are here to do the work of the kingdom. And Jesus seizes this as an opportunity to teach about kingdom work. The first point that he makes to his disciples is that kingdom work is people work. Kingdom work is people work. Jesus doesn't see the disciples arriving at the most inopportune moment in his work of witnessing to this woman. He doesn't view the interruption as an annoyance. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get frustrated. Well, partly because he knows that God has orchestrated this. This is a divine appointment. God timed everything to happen the way it did. He has gotten the essence of his message across to this woman. She can go back and talk to her friends and family and people in the town. He now has a lesson to teach to his disciples. And it was his intent that they witness him sharing this living water with this hurting and broken woman to say to them, this is kingdom work. This is what the kingdom is about. And that's why the disciples were with him day in, day out, hour in, hour out, because they were being discipled by Jesus. This whole incident reminds me of what one of my mentors said to me, Harry Reader once said, anything that you do in ministry by yourself is a wasted opportunity. Anything you do in ministry by yourself is a wasted opportunity. And I've always had to be reminded of that because I'm kind of a loner by nature. So it, I always have to be reminded that any time that I'm doing something to minister to another person, I'm missing an op- opportunity if I don't have another believer alongside of me who needs to learn about how to do this. Because that is kingdom work. Sharing the gospel is kingdom work, but training others to do the work of ministry is also kingdom work. It's all people work. When Jesus said that he had been sent to do the Father's work, he's talking ultimately about the unique work that only he could do because only he is the eternal Son of God. Only he was absolutely perfect in thought, word, and deed. Only he is suitable to be the sacrifice lamb who could hang on the cross and bear the wrath of God that our sins deserve in our place. That's the unique work that Jesus came to do. But having accomplished our salvation, having died for our sins, paid the price in full, and having been raised from the dead and conquering death and evil and the evil one, he now gives us the work of the kingdom. And that's what the rest of the New Testament is about. Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is the essence of kingdom work. Jesus wanted his own disciples to understand that this simple conversation at Jacob's well with a shamed and broken woman was what the kingdom work was going to be about from the first coming of Christ until he comes again. 
It was what they were going to be sent to do. The elders and deacons here at Oakwood have been studying a book for the past year called The Trellis and the Vine. And I love the way that the book The Trellis and the Vine summarizes what the mission of the church is. This is how it's so simple. So Mickey Mouse simple. And yet we still, so much of our lives don't grasp what it means. It says, the mission of us as Christians, as individuals, and more so as a church, is to prayerfully bring the word of God to other people. To prayerfully bring the word of God to other people. It's what Paul was talking about, speaking the truth in love. It's what Jesus was talking about, growing the vine. And sometimes we think that real kingdom work is only done by the ordained people up in front, the people teaching the classes, people leading the Bible studies, people preaching. But if you understand that definition of kingdom work, it's people work and you're all called to do it all day long, every day, while the Lord leaves you here in this fallen world. Kingdom work is people work. Kingdom work is teaching your children the Bible, reading the Bible to them before they go to bed, using biblical principles of discipline when they do things that are wrong. It's encouraging your spouse with the Word of God when they're frustrated or angry or discouraged. It's meeting with one or two other believers over coffee or over breakfast just to encourage them and build them up in the faith. It's applying the biblical principles of justice if you're a lawyer in a courtroom. Or applying the biblical principles of truth and justice to legislation if you're a congressman. Whatever your calling is in life, it's living out the principles of Scripture as an example of how Christ would pursue your calling. It's showing the hope of the gospel to people who are patients in hospitals. It's sharing the promises of God's word with people when they face disease or the death of a loved one. And yes, it is teaching a Sunday school class or leading a Bible study or preaching a sermon. And yes, it is certainly sharing the gospel with an unbeliever so that they might find the living water and the spiritual food that only Christ can give. It's all people work, and you're all called to do it to one degree, in one form, or one type, according to your gifts, according to your opportunities. Kingdom work, yes, does involve a lot of the other things that we do in the church. It involves serving dinners, helping the poor, building church buildings, planning youth retreats, leading committee meetings, but all of that is a means to the end, and the end is prayerfully bringing the word of God to people. It's people work. Secondly, Jesus teaches his disciples here that kingdom work is not just people work. It's deeply satisfying work. It's the most satisfying work you can do in life. In verse 31, it says that the disciples have brought this food back from town and Jesus doesn't appear to be interested in eating it. And they're concerned about him. Matter of fact, literally in the original language, it says they keep on urging him, Lord, Rabbi, eat. And at that point, Jesus claims to have some kind of secret food, something they don't know anything about. And again, and so often in the book of John, we're going to see this. The disciples, just like Nicodemus in chapter 3, just like the Samaritan woman earlier in this chapter, they take him too literally. Who brought him food? Where is he hiding the food? And so Jesus says that 
Awesome statement in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Spiritual food is that which stokes the fire within you. It's what gives you the deepest sense of satisfaction and fulfillment in life. When Jesus talks about accomplishing the work, the word literally is finished, to finish the work. And it's the exact same word that Jesus used on the cross, the very last words that came out of his mouth as he died on the cross when he said, it is finished. I've always been struck by the the two statements of Christ on the cross. The cry of absolute, incomprehensible despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung there bearing the wrath of God that our sins deserved. But then, having spent the wrath of God upon himself, having received it to the full, he cries out with his last breath, not despair, but deep satisfaction beyond anything you and I can comprehend. It is finished. He had come to do the work the Father had given him and he had completed it. We can't experience that to the same degree that Christ did. But we get a taste of it when we prayerfully bring the word of God to other people and we see it take root and bear fruit in their lives. We taste of it. And there is nothing more satisfying in this life You know what it's like when you are so wrapped up in something, so stoked by something, so immersed in something that you forget to eat? My wife does it when she does her paintings all the time. She'll start painting early in the morning and it'll be late in the evening and she'll realize she hadn't eaten all day. She's so wrapped up in what she's doing. I was telling somebody at our Easter breakfast last week that, you know, they were wondering why I wasn't rushing up to the table for all that great food. And I said, you know, this is the way it is on Sundays for me. I don't get hungry until about two or three in the afternoon. It's because of the great calling that the Lord has placed upon me, the great joy of prayerfully communicating the word of God to others. There is nothing more satisfying. It's what Jesus meant when he quoted to the devil, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's what the Apostle John, the same John who wrote this gospel, it's what he meant in his third epistle when he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, and by children he means his spiritual children, those who he had led to Christ and had discipled in Christ, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, my spiritual children, are walking in the truth. There is no greater joy, no greater thrill, nothing that is more satisfying in life than that. I get no greater encouragement in my own ministry than when I hear somebody in the congregation talking to another person in the congregation, referring to a biblical truth that I have shared in a class or a sermon with another person with excitement. That is the most encouraging moment in my entire ministry. And that's so great because all the glory goes to Christ because it's his word that's being shared and his word that's changing lives. I don't get any of the credit, but I get all the satisfaction because God used me to bring the truth of his word to somebody that was spiritually hungry and thirsty. There is no greater joy. D. James Kennedy, when he talked about evangelism, would say this. He says, witnessing is just one beggar telling another beggar where he can find food. 
it is very joyful to feed upon Christ, the bread of life. But it's even more joyful and even more satisfying, having fed upon Christ as the bread of life, to share that bread of life with another person who's spiritually hungry and thirsty. Kingdom work is people work. Kingdom work is deeply satisfying work. Thirdly, Jesus tells his disciples here, kingdom work is God's work. It's what God is doing in the world right now. He said his purpose was to accomplish his work, the Father's work. In chapter 6, verse 38, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in that very context, in the very next verse, he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of what he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. The work of the Father is all focused on that great last day when Jesus Christ will come again to bring the work of the gospel to completion. Jesus goes on to describe his Father's work in terms of the harvest. You notice all the illustrations he uses there are about the harvest. He's using, just like the Old Testament and all the New Testament, it again and again and again uses the imagery of harvesting a farmer's fields in talking about the last days. Growing wheat or fruit to maturity and then gathering them into the barn. That's always meant to be a visual picture of the work of the kingdom. God's work in growing and gathering his people into his kingdom. And that's what goes on in the last days. And these are the days of the harvest. The New Testament talks about the harvest of righteousness and the harvest of the saints. And it's all going on right now. It's a work of God's grace. And in his grace, he chooses to use us so that we might share in his joy, the joy of the harvest. In verse 35, Jesus talks about the urgency of the work. He quotes a saying that farmers would use in that day. He says, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. That's the way it typically was. By the time you ended your planting, at the end of the planting period, and before the harvest began, the period in between there was about four months. That's the way it typically works in terms of physical harvest. But Jesus is saying here that in kingdom work, there is no waiting for the harvest. He says, look, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And everybody who studies this passage seems to agree that he's actually saying, look, he's telling them to look physically with their eyes, Because the crowds are coming from the town of Sychar. The Samaritans have heard the woman's witness, and now they are coming out to see if Jesus really is the Messiah. And as the disciples turned their eyes, lifted their eyes, and looked towards the crowds coming across the fields, they would be wearing these white and very light-colored robes, and he's saying, look, the fields are white for harvest. Today is the day of salvation. And you have been called to enter into the work. This is the harvest time. God is calling people to himself even as I speak. There are people in your neighborhood who are being called to Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. There are people in your workplace that are being called to Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. There are people in our community There are people on the campus. There are people all over our county being called to Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And we are called into the work of the harvest. It's happening right now. As Jesus says in Luke 10, verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in the harvest. It's God's work. God is doing it. 
And if we refuse to participate in it, we are missing the blessing, the joy, the satisfaction of this great people work of the kingdom. While we're satisfied with our television programs and sporting events and cars and houses, whatever it is that we're finding our temporary passion in. Fourth and finally, Jesus teaches his disciples here that kingdom work is people work, it's satisfying work, it's God's work, and ultimately it's teamwork. We do it together. Look at verses 36 through 38. Jesus tells how spiritual harvesting is different than agricultural harvesting. First of all, in kingdom work, in the spiritual harvest, sowing and reaping happen at the same time. They're simultaneous. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. It doesn't work that way in the physical harvest. Sowers and reapers don't rejoice together. The sowers rejoice in completing their work and the reapers rejoice in completing their work, but it never happens at the same time. It's actually Jesus is saying what's happening right now is the fulfillment of what the prophet Amos said in chapter 9. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Sowing and reaping are going on simultaneously all around us. Second way in which he says that the spiritual harvest of today is different than the physical harvest is that in spiritual harvesting, one sows and another reaps. Jesus says, one sows and another reaps. Unlike the farmer who sows and then looks forward to reaping at the harvest, it's very rare in the work of the kingdom that the one who sows the seed of God's word in somebody's life actually also gets to be the one who reaps the full fruit of confessing faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in that person's life. The disciples were about to enter into the work of the harvest of all these townspeople from Sychar, these Samaritans. But they were going to be reaping from the work of sowing that others had done. These people knew the writings of Moses. They knew the writings of the prophets. They had heard about the ministry of John the Baptist who had preached nearby. They had heard of Jesus' own testimony to the Samaritan woman. And they had heard the witness of the Samaritan woman herself. All of these people had sowed the seed in this Samaritan town. All of them had brought the word of God. To these people. And the disciples were about to enter into the joy of the harvest together as a team of workers. There is great joy and satisfaction, as I've already said, in prayerfully bringing the word of God to other people. But there is one greater joy than that it's when you work together with your brothers and sisters in Christ to do it together, when you do it in community. When the community of believers, according to all their different gifts and personalities and temperaments and opportunities, all together work together as the body of Christ to impart the word of God to others. There is no greater joy than that, than laboring together to do the kingdom work of bringing the word of God prayerfully to other people. I've played sports a long time ago. But I still remember the joy of working together as a team to accomplish a great goal. It's one reason we like NCAA basketball during March Madness. We like it so much better, most of us, than the NBA. Because at that level, it's real teamwork. 
and they celebrate together, there is incredible joy in that very temporal, temporary, forgettable crown in working together as a team. There is no greater joy than working together to bring the word of God to those who need to hear it. And that's the joy of the church. Ours is a partnership in the gospel. We are a team of sowers and cultivators and reapers. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is what he says. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he, knew, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. Are you engaged in this work? Is that what stokes you in life? Is that what feeds the fire that drives the passion of your life? The food for disciples of Christ. What satisfies us more deeply than anything else is to do the will of him who sent us and to accomplish his work just like our Lord. And that is to prayerfully bring the word of God to spiritually hungry and thirsty people that they might find their satisfaction in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we have all tasted of this food. We have all felt that deep satisfaction if we know Christ. But Lord, we are so distracted. We are so caught up in other things, in earthly things, in temporal things, things that turn to dust and blow away. Forgive us, Lord, as we come to the table. I pray that we would be renewed in the grace of Christ provided for us at the cross. Accept us at his table, we pray, through him and through him alone. Amen. As we prepare to come